everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to part two of a very special double-stuffed edition of Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, devoted to the most timely topic and pair of guests imaginable. Lincoln Project co-founders Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson discussing the clear and present danger to America that Donald Trump poses in the final days of his presidency and what, if anything, we can do about it. I had asked Jennifer and Rick to be on this podcast because we knew that last Wednesday, January 6th, was going to be an insane day in Washington, D.C. with more than a dozen U.S. senators and more than 100 GOP House members pledging to object to the certified electoral college votes that would make Joe Biden president. This exercise in the Congress, I knew, would be ludicrous, insidious, and reprehensible. So I wanted to talk about that. I also knew it would be the formal start of a civil war in the Republican Party between the faction that is still allegiant to Team Democracy and the other faction more loyal to Team Trump and Team Trumpism, and of course to their own political ambitions, rather than the country. And so I wanted to talk about that too. What none of us knew was that we were about to witness a 9-11 scale national security disaster at the US Capitol in which the terrorists were domestic instead of foreign, and that Trump would be unapologetically on their side, to the point where by the end of the week, there was a wide consensus in American politics that Donald Trump had fucking lost it, that he was an unequivocal menace to the country, that he needed somehow to be contained, constrained, lest he might do God knows what between now and January 20th with unimaginably horrible ramifications. Jennifer and Rick and I talked about all of this. We talked so long and so sprawlingly, in fact, that we decided it was best to break the conversation in half and put it out as a two-part episode. So if you haven't already heard part one, stop listening to this immediately. Go listen to the first installment in which we talk about what happened last week, Trump's role in it, and that of his Republican enablers. Then come right back here. But if you have already listened to part one, then you may proceed for a second round of top-shelf, high-proof, barrel-aged deconstruction of the Donald, the Pappy Van Winkle of never-Trumpism, from Lincoln Project co-founders Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson, right here on Hell and High Water. I think, uh, Jake, uh, that the cabinet should meet and have a discussion. Um, I don't think it'll happen, but I think the cabinet should meet and, and, uh, and discuss this because the, the, the behavior yesterday and, and, and the weeks and months before that has just been outrageous from the president. And, and uh, what, what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday is a direct result of his you know, poisoning the minds of people with the lies and the, and the frauds. The, uh, you were a former member of the cabinet, and according to, uh, in addition to being a White House chief of staff, if you were in the cabinet right now, would you vote to remove him from office? I, uh, yes, I would. That was Jake Tapper from CNN having a discussion with John Kelly, the former White House chief of staff, also a figure of enormous renown in the American military before he became chief of staff. I mention it because I think that Kelly bite guys exemplifies a number of things, all of which are worth noting and then discussing in terms of their implications. One, the, an incredible wave in the last 24 to 48 hours after Wednesday, an incredible wave of, of abandonment. Trump cabinet secretaries like Elaine Chao and Betsy DeVos quitting, staffers in the White House quitting, people like who worked for Trump in the past, whether it's Jim Mattis uh, or John Kelly 
coming out and denouncing him. Bill Barr coming out and denouncing Donald Trump, the most recent, not that long out of his job as attorney general. Um, so people turning on Trump who, for a variety of reasons, stuck with him for longer than a lot of us could understand in real time. So people are abandoning Trump, number one. Number two, the national security establishment people particularly concerned about what they saw on Wednesday and what it indicates about Trump's state of mind and what he might do over the course of the remaining time that he has in office. I would say there's a fair amount of reputation laundering going on here among people trying to oh, yes. say, hey, you yeah. know, we'll talk about that. But, you know, I, oh, you know, I always worry, like, yeah, well, of course, I think I should vote for the 25th Amendment if I was in office so because I'm basically a good guy. I was there for whatever reasons, but now I am exemplar of common sense and morality. And then finally, the 25th Amendment itself being raised in that question by Jake and something that's being widely, rather intensely talked about for the first time in a very, in a serious way, I would say. So that Kelly clip has a lot in it. And let, let me take them backwards. The 25th Amendment, you know, how seriously do you guys take this discussion? We've had a lot of reporting on that, that it's being kicked around yeah. in the cabinet. Do you guys think there's any chance that it could happen? I don't think it is going to happen. But I think that on Wednesday night, it was as close as we it ever probably came. I think that the reporting that we've seen of, about the conversations that took place were very serious. I think that's what motivated the president to release that video of himself, you know, that hostage video of him staring in the camera, reading the pre-written script for him. I think it very nearly happened, that it was a very serious conversation. I think it should have happened. But now that the momentum has sort of been lost. Now that the event is behind us, um, I don't think it's likely that the people who are left there are going to have the courage to stand up and do it. Rick, what do you think about that? You know, this Steve Jobs adage of A's, Har B's, and B's, Har C's. Well, you know, A's, Har B's, and B's, Har C's, and Trump is left now with the people you'd scrape them up behind a bus station. They are not the sharpest knives in the drawer now. They're not the brightest bulbs in the chandelier. And a lot of these people are still loyal to the guy and it's going to be tough for them to overcome that which is why i think it is a vanishingly small possibility even if mike pence suddenly like grew a pair tonight and said you know i'm not going to go down in history as you know the last guy on the titanic with this guy but it's still unlikely and you know if trump gets wind of it he'll fire every single person and replace them with you know family members and dogs and cats and miscellaneous you know people on twitter there's nothing here that stops them from doing it except courage. And, you know, courage is not exactly in, in long supply among the Trump world. Right. Guys, it, apparently Twitter has suspended real Donald Trump. Really? Finally. What? That's permanent deletion the of the account? Holy crap. Account suspended. Wow. Yeah. This is history, right? This is history right now. We're living history here on Friday night, January the 8th, 2021 at 6.31 p.m. Eastern. Twitter permanently suspended President Donald Trump's account on Friday. And here's the tweet from Twitter Safety. After close review of recent tweets from the at real Donald Trump account and the context around them, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Uh... It's rather extraordinary. You know, people remember where they were on 9-11. People remember where they right. were the first time Donald Trump was elected. This. And now we'll all remember where we were the night that Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. Mm -hmm. Quite incredible. 
Um, do you guys think it's too late? Well, I'm going to call that it'll take, you know, less than 48 hours for Donald Trump to set up an account on Parler, send the word mm-hmm. out to all of his supporters. And Parler's about to see an enormous influx of subscribers and he's going to start organizing over there. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt Donald Trump is not going to now decide that social media isn't go for silent. him. Right. 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 Yeah. I do think that um, Twitter and Facebook both could have taken a lot of actions a lot sooner than this, short of actually banning him. And I really tried to see both sides of this because I'm an enormous advocate for free speech. You know, conservatives complain all the time about how they're being shut down and they're being silenced. They're not. You know, we have this extraordinary access to uh, be able to advance our message and articulate what we feel and believe in this country unlike any other nation on earth. And that always has to be part of these conversations. But there's a a corporate responsibility at Twitter and Facebook and places like that as well. And I think, frankly, had they taken smaller steps consistently earlier on, that some of this might have been avoided. The impact that this has had on his ability to have this kind of an impact on his followers could have been stunted a little bit. Trump can go on Parler, right? And he will get you know, many millions of followers on Parler. I have no doubt about it. And it will be a great boon. It'll be a great boon to Parler. But you know that Trump, you know, who was basically the basis for his political career was his genuine success. Let's just acknowledge it as the host of The Apprentice, someone who at Mm -hmm. one point, 20 some million people followed, watched The Apprentice. I was on network television. He was a mainstream star. Right. He doesn't want to be the biggest fish in the right wing nuthouse brand. And so I think that the parlor move is a move he will make, but he will be, you know, frustrated by it enormously because he wants the 180 million active users on Twitter to be able to see his stuff, not just the self-selecting people that live in parlor world. His most powerful weapon has been taken from him. He cannot rally in the way he did before because Facebook and Twitter have, have at last decided that there was a line that was too far. And that line that was too far was trying to incite rebellion against his own country and trying to incite insurgency against his own country. Um, And we're going to have an avalanche now of would they, could they, should they, why did they do this? Why did they not do this sooner? We're going to debate this. It's now the next couple of days are going to be about Twitter and this decision because it has become something that does mediate so much of our politics now. And, it's an astounding moment, guys. It, it, I mean, it, it truly it, is. And, you know, it, I mean, you think about how much power, um, I mean, the symbiotic relationship between Trump and Twitter, and you think about how much power Twitter gave him. I mean, mm-hmm. every presidential candidate I've ever covered, every winning one, you know, there's always been a new technological moment in every campaign. And you know, sure. you've, seen, you've seen that happen. Trump was, for, for, I mean, ironically, a guy who was as old as he was, you know, he's the most kind of modern media candidate, you know, of all and right. his mastery of Twitter, his ability to use it to, to, as a trolling device, as a organizing tool, as everything in the world has kind of been one of the key elements of his success. It marks something, you know, the moment when Twitter decides that it can afford to break with Trump and when it would be too costly to stick with Trump, you know, is a moment, right? It tells you something about where Donald Trump's stock is in the world, for one thing. And also just how far he's gone, you know? Yeah. You know what my concern is as we're all talking about this and just we're literally processing it in real time here is the degree to which Donald Trump's ego and his own view of himself is connected to Twitter, how much of how he defines himself and sees himself and knowing the state 
of his mental state going into this day and this whole week, this actually really concerns me about what the next couple of days will look like. You know, how does Donald Trump process this? Does he, how much more dangerous does he become? What does he try to incite next when he wants the masses to respond to Twitter trying to silence him? His message, among other things, is going to be that Twitter is trying to silence them. It's going to be immediately become an us against them sort of thing with him. And after seeing what he was able to get them to do on Wednesday, I got to tell you, as I'm sitting here and just talking it through with you, I'm genuinely developing concern about how this could unfold over the next 12, what do we have, 12 days left? What, do, you know, what does he do next? How, do, how does his totally insane, mm-hmm. disconnected brain decide to respond to this? Yeah, by the time this podcast is out on Tuesday, uh, it'll actually be one week, one week exactly that Trump will have left in office. Uh, but that uh, point you're making, Jennifer, is exactly the right point and one that I really want to dive deep into next. So uh, let us uh, talk about the the myriad manifest and really quite uh, like worrying dangers that the country faces uh, from an unhinged Donald Trump with only days remaining in office. Let's talk about all of that in in what will I'm sure be a distressing distressing level of detail after we come back from this quick uh, advertising break. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Uh, So before we went to break, uh, Jennifer and Rick, we were talking about the damage that Trump could do uh, with this one remaining week that he has left in office. Um, right. You know, impeachment is very much on the table. Uh, it looks like uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, and the House Democrats are going to proceed with an impeachment process. Um, you know, they will. There's an overwhelming sentiment among House Democrats uh, to go forward. We don't know how many Republicans will be on board for that, but I think there's a lot of talk about Pelosi doing basically a snap impeachment. Right, no hearings, take it to the floor, have a debate, and vote on it quickly get it through the House. And then the question is, what would come after that? You know, look, the, I think Democrats understand that this is mostly a symbolic move. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell is li- not likely to hold a trial in the Senate anytime soon. There's been some murmuring and muttering about the notion that McConnell wouldn't even hold a trial until either the eve of Joe Biden's uh, inauguration or the day of Joe Biden's inaugura- inauguration. And so the question is like, what good would that do? There's discussion about the fact that it might do something good. It would be important to send a message that presidents can't get away with this kind of thing. It would also open the door to a vote uh, barring Donald Trump from running for office uh, ever again in the future, which is something that a lot of people dearly would like to achieve. But whatever happens in the Senate and whenever it happens is is contingent on some Senate Republicans, a non-trivial number, voting to convict Donald Trump. So um, it's clear that there's a lot of upset with Donald Trump among what we now define as mainstream Republican senators. Uh, people are pissed and scared and freaked out by what they saw last week. So I, I guess I ask you guys, even though you are lapsed Republicans and a lot of Republicans obviously hate you guys now, Trump Republicans don't like you at all. I know you guys still have deep ties in the party. So I'm curious what you're hearing about that, about the state of Republican sentiment uh, related to Trump, related to impeachment, and whether you think it's possible, just possible, that there could be enough Republicans in the Senate uh, to vote in favor of convicting Trump in order to get to the number of votes we need, which is 67. 
Oddly, the fact that Trump's number one weapon, the number one fear of Republicans I've talked to in the last five years is, oh God, he could tweet about me. Right. He could tweet about me. If he tweets about me, I'm dead. If he tweets about me, I'm fucked. If he tweets about me, my career is over. Well, he can't tweet about y'all anymore. Look, I think it's real hard to get to 67, but it ain't impossible. And I think like a lot of preference cascades, you know, the, the old Hemingway thing about bankruptcy, it happens slowly and then all at once. Right. I think if Trump's political bankruptcy happens as an impeachment, it is slowly and then all at once. And a lot of it depends on what he does in the next few days. If, if he spends the weekend trying to, you know, nuke Mexico, they're going to impeach him and remove him. Right. But I don't know. It's impossible to read inside the black box that is Trump's brain at this moment. Yeah. And the moment that we're in right this second, right. I don't see 17 coming forward. But imagine if just one person like a Liz Cheney came out and mm -hmm. said, I would vote for impeachment now. That changes the landscape. So do you guys agree? Is it your view as we sit here right now that Trump should be impeached? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, on... I'm not challenging you sure. as in, I think it's a bad idea, yeah. but explain why you think it's a good idea this late, that to, but what are the arguments for it? For the same Nuclear reasons. Weapons. Well, that's the argument for the 25th Amendment, that he's dangerous and unstable and, and we got to get him away from there. But, you know, if the argument for impeachment is no no different than the reasons that the Senate expelled those senators back in 1861, because the president of the United States just engaged in an assault on the government of the United States. He just tried to overturn and participated in an attempted coup on Wednesday. That was Donald Trump's attempt to overturn Joe Biden's administration before they were able to, you know, move the beds into the into the White House. So I, I don't think they'll have any trouble making a credible and legal argument for impeachment. Yeah, I mean, there is a perfectly legitimate argument for impeachment right now, and it is a lot less inflected than the Ukraine situation was. There are, right. there are a lot fewer layers in the baklava than there were in the Ukraine situation. There's two things that are just disentangled them. One thing with respect to the 25th and impeachment, right? The reality is that impeachment is clearly, at least on some level, it's about precedent. It's about sending this message that says you can't behave like this. There must be a penalty for a president doing what he did right. in the post-election period broadly that led up to what happened on Wednesday. We must at least symbolically put that stake in the ground and say, this is not okay. I think there's probably a widespread consensus, not just in the Democratic Party uniformity. An awful lot of Republicans agree with that, at least of the rational ones who are not in the U.S. House of Representatives who agree with all of that. So there's that. The, the 25th Amendment is more straightforwardly about trying to get him out as fast as possible. Right. Both of them have that backdrop, though, which is we're afraid of what might happen. In the few days that we have left between now and when he departs, on January 20th, I am told that he is going to leave the office on January 19th. He has announced now that he's not going to go to the inauguration. So the plan right, right. now is for them to go to Mar-a-Lago on the 19th and then never come back. We now have word that there's another set of, I don't want to call them protests, but of events taking shape among the seditionists. At, they are organizing around 50 mm -hmm. state capitals and the United mm -hmm. States Capitol for Sunday, January 17th. The, the invitation says armed. I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah. So they're saying we need to get together on the Sunday before Joe Biden's inaugurated 
Washington, D.C., and 50 state capitals echoing, replicating what happened on this last Wednesday, which I will point out that the terrorists, they thought they won that day. None of them feel as though that was a defeat. They have gone home to tell their war stories and brag about what happened. Yeah, they're swinging dicks. So I say to you guys, there's a couple different areas of concern. People are scared about what might happen between now and Joe Biden's inauguration. What are you guys scared of? I'm scared that there will be a handful of serious people who will not be the dolts like the ones who tried to kidnap and murder Gretchen Whitmer. All it takes is a half a dozen serious people to send this country into pure chaos with political violence. And they probably wouldn't go after Biden and Harris directly because they've got service protection, but they might kill Lindsey Graham or they might try to kill Chuck Schumer or they might try to kill Nancy Pelosi. And I think if that happens, we are plunged into some darkness. And these people don't think there's any accountability at all. Jennifer, what are you scared of? pretty much the same thing. You know, on Wednesday, as we were watching all this unfold on the on television, my concern that I expressed then was that it would spread to state capitals on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. That all, all of these crazy people at home watching on TV would say, gee, I wish I was in Washington for that kind of fun. And, you know, maybe I'll do it here in Concord or Boston or, you know, their own capital. So I do fear for that. And they've got time to organize. They've got time to figure it out. And I, I would hope that the governors around this country are taking that really seriously and meeting with their National Guard right this minute as well and being prepared for what could happen. And I'm in fear for greater loss of life. What I'm not afraid of, I am not afraid that they will ultimately succeed. I am absolutely certain in my belief and my faith that the Constitution will hold, that America will prevail, that when all is said and done, our democracy will still be here. That what scares me is what it's going to take to get there. You guys have both cited the domestic concerns, and obviously those are serious. Mm-hmm. This notion of the possibility of a new civil war is clearly, I mean, we are more divided, we are more polarized, it is more bitter, it is now apparently on the brink of, of violence in a way that we've never seen in our lifetimes or at least not since you know the worst days of 1968. Um, but I think worse in, in terms of the polarization, the metrics of polarization are worse, even though there was yeah. obviously political violence in the 60s, et cetera. But this is a, I don't think anybody thought, even since 1968, I don't think anybody really talked about a new civil war right. you know, where you have 70 million on one side and, and 80 some million on the other side. You know, That's a terrifying proposition. And there's the short-term concern about that, what could happen between now and when Trump leaves. But that goes on after Trump leaves. And the, the possibility of, of an increasingly violent civil war-like environment in American politics is something that we really need to worry about before Trump leaves and then after Trump leaves. There's this other area of concern, mm-hmm. which is the thing that I think provoked the, the 10 living former secretaries of defense to come out with their op-ed organized right. by Dick Cheney last week. They're worried about the possibility, among among other things, but they're certainly worried about the possibility of foreign entanglements. You know, Trump has been saber rattling over Iran. Is there some world in which Trump attempts to use, manufacture a foreign crisis in a deluded attempt mm-hmm. to think that that would be the way in which he'd stay in power? Are you guys worried about that? I do think about guy? that because Absolutely. he's put a, a number of people over at DOD who are very docile Trumpers and having spent some time in the Department of Defense as a younger man. When a certain guy named Dick Cheney was the secretary working for him, I can tell you the use of military force in this country is fairly low friction in certain areas. 
So if he called up Millie right now and said, I want you to whack these 10 sites in Iran right now with cruise missiles, right. you know, Chairman Millie has Chiefs. two options, do it or resign. Right. And if he resigns, you know, Trump will keep firing people until he finds someone who will. So it's a dangerous thing. And the, and the you know, Mark Ambender today had a great little quick tweet storm about how Trump doesn't have the power to literally turn a key or push a button to launch nuclear weapons. But that's also a system that is not completely um, controllable if he really gets determined to do it. Now, I hope that Speaker Pelosi's call to Milley and to the chiefs rattled them a little bit. And I hope that they would resist carrying out an illegal order. But at this point, you know, we're in a very dark place and he's looking for any option to stay in the mix. You know, the other side of that is if you were a nation that has spent the last 20 years building up an anger with the United States, trying to find a way to get back at the United States for, say, an incursion into Iraq and Afghanistan, or if you were Iran looking at what's happening in our country right now, or Putin and, you know, his allies, you know, my fear is what is somebody out there is thinking about executing in here. Right. And I'm not talking about flying a plane into a building. For one thing, they now know that there are going to be big crowds gathered at 50 state capitals, right? So that right. So there's 50 targets right out of the gate. And it's also a really easy time to instigate something and sort of get away with not having to take the blame for it because there are going to be so many people that are immediately on the list of suspects. It's bad enough that we have to worry about these domestic terrorists who are, are trying to do harm. But the ability of people from outside of our country, of entities and states outside of the United States to come in in the next few days or to organize people who are already here on their mm -hmm. behalf is a really serious concern as well. Right. So you have the kind of Trump as commander in chief, possessor of the nuclear codes problem. Rick, you talked about about Pelosi calling uh, Milley, the chairman of the yep. Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, the reporting on that was she called basically to say, is there some way we can short circuit Trump's um, ability yeah. to act as commander in chief, right? Yeah. If tomorrow Vladimir Putin gets a wild hair up his ass and turns the key and attacks us, I want us to have the flexibility to attack in return and retaliate, et cetera. Right. But if, if it's Donald Trump saying, I want to nuke Mexico, then we need to have at least some sensibility inside of the organization that this is a president no longer capable of, of rationally pursuing his duties, even without the 25th. I mean, the chain of command only goes so far. And you were required to not execute an illegal order. Nuking Mexico, obviously illegal order. But it's this is why impeachment, I, I, I think, is a, a mandatory formation right now. But, but here's the state of the world today, John. I'm not concerned about Vladimir Putin pulling the trigger and, and nuking the United States in this moment because I am of the understanding that the leader of Russia is more disciplined and more intelligent so. and more, more of a strategic thinker than the president of the United States. I am more worried about what Donald Trump will do than I am about what Vladimir Putin will do right in this second or, but, but or at least be, in the example of nuclear weapons. But let's be clear. Looking at the image of the Capitol on Wednesday, mm -hmm. if you are an adversary of the United States of America, you are like, this is a good moment to strike. Sure. Um, Absolutely. Whether you are a state actor or a non-state actor. Absolutely. Completely. That's one concern. 
There's the other concern that we've just talked about, which is Trump as commander in chief, nuclear codes. What could what could Trump instigate or initiate that would be, again, probably to serve some diluted notion that if we're at, somehow if he thinks if I get us into a war, right. somehow I could stay. Right. I'll get extra I'll get extra bonus time. Right. That's, that special Trump world that he lives in. <laughs> right. right. You know, there's Trump. There's the possibility on the domestic front of domestic political violence in, as we've said, in these 50 state capitals and mm-hmm. in uh, in Washington D.C. There's Trump um, using that as an excuse. A lot of people are very afraid of the notion of Trump uh, implementing martial law. These are all the things that people are thinking about right now in this very fraught moment. I guess there are two questions that come out of that. And I mean, there's obviously one thing that we, if you think about the Nixon precedent. You know, Jim Schlesinger, you know, figured out a way to kind of short circuit so that Nixon, right. if he tried to do something, that short circuited one problem, which was the Nixon yeah. with this, his finger on the trigger problem. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Pelosi's trying to work out with Milley, right? Right, right. But all of the, I just laid out a panoply of different kinds of potential things that could get fucked up in this next week to 10 days. Do you guys think the only comprehensive answer is a very rapid impeachment? Like yeah. that's. Given the 25th uh, is the probably 25th off the is table, that's happen. the way it's got to go. Yeah, the 25th is not going to happen. I just don't see the numbers. I'm not a head counter of, of what the psychology of every member of the cabinet is, yeah. but I, I I think it's just given the quality or, or lack of quality of the people that he's selected for the cabinet, um, I don't see a lot of bold, independent thinkers who put the country first. I see a lot of yeah. Trump ass kissers. So it's basically, let's get this impeachment thing done. Let's go quick. Yep. <laughs> get the impeachment yeah. done and, and hope that and hope you can get to 67 in the Senate, that if things aren't already there, if not enough Republicans have, are to the point where they would be willing to vote for conviction, that by the time we get to that moment, whether that's like in the middle of next week, let's say. That's um, a long time. That's a long time if Donald Trump is off Twitter going crazy in the Oval Office. Well, and yes, that brings like, us back to as, that. As you... his brain begins to boil, that's a lot of time for him to <laughs> in there trying to figure out what what can he do to make things worse. Yes. And you're right. I think, Jennifer, as you, as you sit here, you just said a second ago, as we sit here thinking about it, as we sit in this historic moment where Donald Trump has just learned that he's been kicked off Twitter. That does seem to be like a, a potentially very like we all want to cheer. Thank God they finally. Yeah kick that fucker off that platform. But on the other hand, it does give you a little bit of pause that, you know, how, how stable is he and what could trigger him? I mean, he's never been stable, right? But the question is- Not very. The answer is not very. Yeah. What little thing could push him over into the, into the realm of like genuine madness, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. There's always been a certain sort of Captain Queeg style, you know, Trumpian paranoia thing. I'm talking like pure, like silence of the lambs level stuff. And I think having this taken away from him, um, this is a staggering blow to his power. A and what staggering you should, blow. What you should really be worried about is what crazy thing is Stephen Miller or Corey Lewandowski whispering into his ear right this minute? Right, right. Because they so, will feed it. I, <laughs> I wouldn't say that this is the most optimistic sounding podcast that I've ever done. <laughs> it's pretty fucking pessimistic, actually. Um, but uh, it is what it is. So we got to be realistic here. And uh, on that note, uh, let's take a quick break uh, before we come back to talk a little more with Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project for the final part of this two part episode of Hell and High Water.
Welcome back to Hell and High Water with Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project. So guys, uh, we have not talked, really, we've talked a lot uh, tonight, uh, but we haven't really talked much at all, if really any, about Joe Biden in this conversation, yeah. the incoming president-elect. And, you know, if you look at all of the fears that we just laid out uh, related to Trump and you know, the underlying reality, which is that Trump is a symptom of this problem and not the cause of the problem and not the problem itself, uh, that he just capitalized off of these profound divisions and all this anger and this tendency towards insurrection and, and all of the shit that we saw manifest here. This is stuff that Trump is tapping into, not stuff that he created. Uh, and he's tapped into it to a, to a degree and then accelerated it to a degree that most of us could never have anticipated. But knowing all of that, um, it does feel like, you know, look, I mean, Joe Biden's term was going to be, you know, beset by challenges from the beginning, you know, nothing, having nothing to do with any of this. Just think about, you know, just the scale of what mm -hmm. is needed to get uh, vaccinations rolled out in a widespread way across the country, dealing with COVID, fixing the economy, coming back from COVID, even before we get to the deep divisions in the country that are on display. And then you throw in these divisions and you think, man, this guy is facing a hill that's not merely steep to climb, but is like basically perpendicular uh, as far as I can see it. Or maybe I'm overstating it. Um, give me a sense of whether you think I'm like, you know, exaggerating or is that kind of an accurate assessment of how tough it's going to be for Biden as he takes office? Oh, no, you're absolutely. No, correct. I think you're right on target. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big lift ahead. I mean, in every way. I, I would suggest, John, though, and I'm somebody <laughs> who has campaigned against Biden and Obama. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a liberal, even leaving the Republican Party, you know, philosophically, you know, policy wise, I'm going to have my differences with Joe Biden forever. But I do believe in all seriousness and all sincerity that if there's anybody in the political world right now who is up to this moment, it's probably Joe Biden. I think that he has, you know, his ability to build coalitions, the gravitas that he brings to this, the sensitivity, the, I mean, all the things that are going to be required to build any sort of cooperation whatsoever in Washington. And, and also to be able to speak to the American people and, and say what we really need to hear right now. I do think that Joe Biden is probably of all the people out there that we had to choose from that he's probably the best guy for this moment. Rick, you agree with that? I do. I do. I think that Joe Biden has an advantage. He's an institutionalist mm -hmm. and he's a process guy. He's a procedural guy. He's going to be able to hire the right kind of people to deal with things. And look, if Joe Biden gets COVID right, okay, if in a 90 or 100 day period after he's inaugurated, 50% of Americans have gotten vaccinated. They get their shit together and start pushing back on COVID. That's 99% of what he has to do. COVID and the economy are going are gonna to be the way he is judged. Binding the country back together, that's a bigger lift. But he's going to be able to get enough Republicans to even tell Mitch McConnell to fuck yourself if it comes to COVID recovery and relief stuff. And if it comes to just focusing on what's killing 4,000 Americans a day. I think he can do it. He's going to have a lot of allies, I think, that will surprise people, especially now that Donald Trump doesn't have the sniper position from Twitter to destroy Republicans who oppose him. So that is definitely true. There is no question that Joe Biden will have allies. He will have, obviously, a ton of allies in the Democratic Party. He may even have a few allies in the Republican Party. 
But, you know, we can't not uh, bring our attention back to people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley Mm -hmm. and those 139 House members who are now on the record in a recorded vote in the United States Congress uh, as being more wedded to Trumpism and really to insurrection uh, than they are to, you know, basic democratic processes and institutions in this country, you know, even after a domestic terror event in their own house on Capitol Hill, they still stuck with this thing and they still cast these votes. So like what happens to those people? Um, right. I know the Lincoln Project's mission is to, for, was first to defeat Trump and then, you know, in the longer term to defeat Trumpism. So now you've defeated Trump and helped to get him mm-hmm. out of office. You know, they are obviously a certain manifestation of Trumpism, but I mean, in particular, what are you going to do about uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and people like him? How do you make those people pay? We're going to try to have an accountability function inside and outside the political space. Because look, it's one thing for me to go to Josh Hawley and make an ad about Josh Hawley or for Steve to go on the air and bang Josh Hawley around a little bit. It's another thing for us to make sure that every corporate donor to Josh Hawley is in a burning hell. And that every corporate donor to the NRSC or to Josh Hawley's political committees gets the focus on them in a way that, you know, and we sort of road tested it a little bit with Trump's various law firms during the course of this recount stuff. These people wanted what they wanted out of Washington. They wanted to be involved with Trump and they wanted to have the financial benefit from it. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't really want polite society to know about it. And so we were able to. Uh, get them to basically flip three law firms uh, to flip and leave Trump. We were basically able to bring that kind of pressure. We're going to bring that pressure in some public-facing campaigns against the people who support these folks. On the Trumpism front, John and Jennifer and I, had, but we've all talked about this a lot. It's not just a political problem; it's a cultural problem. Right. It's it's a civics problem. It's yeah. a much deeper wound in this country, and. We're going to face a lot of challenges ahead on that. And I won't say that we've got a fully developed plan on that front, but it's something we're talking about a lot because these people have been mentally manipulated in a way that I've never seen in our politics before, where if there's nothing ideological about it anymore, it's all pure cultural reflexivity and this idea that, you know, the libs and big tech are out to get me at all times. And those are things we're going to have to have a lot more of a, a discussion on and, and a lot more of a focus on going forward. John, a big problem here is this whole issue of misinformation and disinformation. This president mm-hmm. has been so effective at advancing total falsehoods. It is much easier to mislead people and to convince them of something that is untrue when they are not educated on what is true. And I'm not calling them ignorant. You know, the idea of civics education is lost in this country. Why did these people on Wednesday believe that there was a possibility to have Donald Trump retain the presidency if they could stop Mike Pence from reading the Electoral College results out loud. Why did they believe that that could be true? There's a lot of things that went into it, but part of it is because they were not educated on what the actual system is that we live under as a democratic republic. You're right. They're good Good to call them all stupid, but there's an awful lot of stupidity running around. There's an uh, awful in, lot of ignorance in addition, out there. No in addition question to about right. it. Bad, the combination Absolutely. of bad education and st- stupidity uh, in combo, it's a, not a great way to go through life. Yeah. And and our sense of mission from the start of this was that we knew that Trump was sort of the keystone of this edifice of shit. And we had to work that problem first. 
and, and we've talked about this a ton inside the family here, Trumpism, as I said earlier, is not just a political problem. It's a cultural problem. It's a civics problem. It's a values problem. And in all respects, it has an overhang that's not going to go away soon. And, you know, Trump may be off Twitter tonight, but he's not off Fox News. And he's not off the hamster wheel of Trump misinformation. And that's going to run and run and run for a long time ahead. And we have to fight back against that or else it's going to corrode our society at a level that we cannot tolerate as a people if we want to have a, a, a functioning republic. You know, John, I would say that I never have looked at the Lincoln Project as being pro or anti-Republican Party or Democratic Party. We are pro-democracy. Yeah. And that's what being anti-Trump and anti-Trumpism is rooted in, that we are pro-democracy. And what we have learned in the last couple of days is how fragile democracy is, even in America, or maybe especially in America is what we've learned, how fragile it is, how easily lost it could be. We have learned how easily a, a demagogic figure can move thousands of people to violence, to unconstitutional anti-American activity. We, we were keeping our list of all the things I'm not on this conversation mm. so far. What I am is a mom and a grandmother. And everything that I have ever done in politics, especially what I have done with the Lincoln Project, has been fueled by that, by my love for and my commitment to protecting and preserving a future for my own children and grandchildren. We are living in a moment right in this very second where the continuation of democracy is more at risk than it has ever been in my lifetime in this country. That's what the commitment of the Lincoln mm -hmm. Project has to be going forward. Whatever shape it be that becomes necessary for that to take. It is cultural. It is societal. It is political. It is educational. It's all those things. So that has to be our priority, our focus. And now we figure out as we go forward, what shape does it need to take to be effective? I thought that was a superb answer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You should just basically, you should basically just, whenever you get asked any question about what the Lincoln Project's about, you should just basically say, please speak. I say, well, I'm going to refer to my college uniform. <laughs> I yield back the balance of my time. To, uh, <laughs> I yield my time. <laughs> Call for unanimous consent. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you for, for being here with me. Thank you so much, John. This has really been fun. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Jennifer Horn and Rick Wilson for being here for this epic talkathon. If you liked this two-part episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a very nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It helps to get the word out about what we're doing here on Hell and High Water. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 